0: Okay, wait, wait, just a second. got to plug this. It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 162 for September 27th, 2009. The more spam changes, the less it changes. The pitches change from time to time, but all the underlying muck remains the same. People keep trying to give me money. Some of them have millions, some of them have just a few hundred thousand, but they keep sending me messages telling me they have a lot of money they'd like to give me. Meanwhile, the IRS wants me to visit their website and read all about my underreported income. One change I've noticed in the past few months is that more of my take-my-money-please spam messages purport to have been written by a woman. Most of the time, the pitches are so clearly fraudulent that one need not read more than the first dozen words or so. Sometimes not even that. Some messages are so laughably composed that I have to read every mangled phrase, and I have to wonder who, if anyone, would be foolish enough to fall for such a message. Take, for example, one that tells me I have won the 2009 Euro-Afro-Asian Sweepstakes Lottery International Program. There is a hyphen between Euro and Afro. There is no hyphen between Afro and Asian, and I have to wonder why that is the case. I also have to wonder if this is a sweepstakes or a lottery. I've never entered the lottery, so then I have to wonder how I came to win it. The program is sponsored, I am told, by the Sultan of Brunei and Bill Gates. The message, of course, is full of references to barristers and doctors. The headquarters of the 2009 Euro-Afro-Asian Sweepstakes Lottery International Program is not anywhere in Europe or Africa, or Asia. It's in California. Specifically, it claims to be located in Sacramento, California. I suspect, however, they forgot the O at the end of Sacramento. The phone number would ring in England. And then there's the matter of big text, bright red and blue lettering, photos of people with checks. Wait a minute. One of those pictures is large enough that I can read the words behind on the wall, and it says, Michigan Lottery? Well, let's move on to the IRS. A disregarding for a moment that the Internal Revenue Service does not ever send email notifications, consider this message. Taxpayer ID, William.Blinn. Okay, that's part of my email address. 00000174073547 U.S. That number has absolutely no relationship to any number I'm familiar with. Tax type, income tax. Issue, unreported underreported income and then in parenthesis fraud application oh i get to apply for fraud wait okay so let's read the message please review your tax statement on internal revenue service irs website click on the link below review tax statement for taxpayer id and then it repeats that idiotic taxpayer id it is signed internal revenue service interestingly the message was sent from a server in brazil now that seems a bit unlikely I can't imagine why an agency of the United States government would use a server in Brazil. And the link the message suggests that I click would actually go to www.irs.gov.nyusa2b.eu. The top-level domain, EU, means European Union. All that junk at the beginning, the www.irs.gov, means nothing. What counts is the actual domain name, which is NYUSA2B, and the top-level domain, EU, European Union. As far as I know, the IRS has not been outsourced to Europe. A bit of research revealed that the domain NYUSA2B.eu is registered to Osuka Noboru, who claims to live in Paris, but on a street that sounds more like it belongs in Prague. As for the domain itself, it no longer exists. The EU registrar shows the domain name as quarantined, which means that the name is currently unavailable because it has been deleted. Deleted domain names are put on a 40-day quarantine as a safety measure before they're released again for registration. The lottery message I talked about initially was an extremely long message. Here's one that's more telegraphic. East-West Australia Lotteries, you have won $1 million, United States dollars, in East-West Australia Lotteries. For further development for clarification and procedure, please contact Mrs. Linda Van Loos, Direct Bank Amsterdam, Amsterdam, the Netherlands. The email address is directbank@aim.com. Does anyone seriously believe that any bank in the world would use an AIM account For financial transactions. There's also the small matter of odd spacing throughout the message, strange capitalization, and all that stuff. But this crook did get one thing right. The country code for Netherlands, and no, it's not the Netherlands, as any resident of Netherlands would know, is actually 31, and that's the prefix that was on the phone number. How about the old fake survey ploy? This is an offer to be what is essentially a secret shopper. These kinds of positions do, of course, exist, but they typically don't pay $100 for half an hour's work, and they don't require you to have an account with any particular bank, as this one does. Listen to this. Most of the time, a shopper gets assignments on a daily basis. The requirements for this position is to be no younger than 21 years old and to own a Citibank account. The grammatical errors are always kind of amusing. We have requirements, which is plural, and then a singular verb, is. And you can be no younger than 21. Not than, with an A, but then, with an E. To obtain more information about the offer, I am invited to contact K-I-F-F-I-Y-I-F-8177 at hotmail.com. Well, that address contains two clues about the fraudulent nature of the message. Businesses don't use Hotmail accounts, and legitimate email addresses rarely consist of randomly typed characters. Here's one I call, Help Me Get My Dead Father's Fortune Out of the Country. It begins, "Greeting, My name is Monica George, with my younger brother Dwayne. Both of us are from Swaziland, and for some reason Swaziland is in parentheses, but presently living here in West Africa. As result of political crisis which lead our living in this country, Dakar, Senegal, with refugee status, I saw your profile email address at site, and I became interested to know you. The people who write these things are getting better. This one, for example, was long, and it sounded sincere. It included a lot of facts. Monica George, for example, and her brother Dwayne. They'd like me to help them get their dead father's money out of the country, all $8.1 million of it. But there was one significant slip-up in the letter. Maybe you caught it as I read it. I'll read it again. I saw your profile email address at site, and I became interested to know you. Site was supposed to have been replaced by something like, oh, say, Facebook. I have a special email address. I use it for all of my communications with website registrars. The email address is any non-registrar mail is spam at blinn.com. Now if I get a message to any non-registrar mail is spam at blinn.com and it's not from my registrar, guess what? (laughs) Spammers are very helpful in that case. It allows me to identify and delete their messages. With all the changes in banks, lots of banks are changing their security systems. But they don't send out messages advising you of the fact, at least not by email. They'll advise you by some other method. And banks that you don't do business with won't advise you that they've changed their system. I didn't do business with the GMAC bank, and I'm not going to do business with it now that it's the Ally Bank. And a side note here, A-L-L-Y. Did anyone think when they created this name, which obviously is supposed to look like Ally, But A-L-L-Y, how would you pronounce that? I would pronounce that Alley. Would you want to go to the Alley Bank? But I digress. GMAC Bank has recently changed its name to be Alley Bank. And these days, we introduce a new version of banking software. As you are registered to be an online account holder, please update your account records. In order to update your account, please follow the link below. And where does the link below go? Go. It goes to a domain called ltdrvid.com. dot com. I'm pretty sure that's not a bank website. Okay, last one, and this is a pretty standard, oh, I'm dying and I want you to have my money message. The only extraordinary aspect of the message is that people still fall for this ploy. Because the person is dying, time is clearly short, so the pressure is on you to conclude the process quickly. You can easily imagine the complications, can't you? You'll, of course, have to establish an account at a bank so that the funds can be transferred to you. And there will, of course, be a minimum deposit required. Something fairly minimal, since it's going to be an account that will have millions deposited to it. The initial deposit will probably have to be 2000 or 5000 or $10,000, a mere pittance, but you do have to have the account at this bank or we can't send the money to you. That's one possibility. Or the dying person will actually die, and someone else will step in. They'll offer to finish the process, of course, but they'll want some sort of payment in advance. The techniques change from time to time, but the underlying pitches remain the same. Protecting yourself from fraudsters of this type is pretty easy. Just be a skeptic. I continue to use and enjoy Windows 7, so this week I thought I'd talk about Windows 7 hits and misses. Windows 7 has a lot more hits than misses. It has impressed me because it almost always does what I hope it would do. I have encountered a few rough edges that Microsoft will need to grind away, but I've found more things that just simply work. As it did with Windows Millennium Edition, Microsoft has generally admitted that Vista was seriously flawed. I'm pretty sure nobody's going to have to make that admission about Windows 7. One thing I should probably clarify right away is that when I say Windows 7, I really mean Windows 7 Ultimate, which is the only version Microsoft should have shipped. It's the version I have installed and although I know that some of the other versions omit some of Ultimate's features, it's the one that I'm comfortable talking about. Most of the situations I describe in talking about Windows 7 will function the same with Windows Professional, and many will function similarly with Windows Home Premium. One of the most significant annoyances that has been solved with Windows 7 is really pretty minor, but it was a significant annoyance for me. Previous versions of Windows allow pop-up dialogues to grab focus regardless of what else is occurring. Windows 7 has eliminated this. When I install an application or allow an update to run, I like to continue working. The installation or update is supposed to happen in the background, but sometimes the application needs an answer to a question. Before Windows 7, the installer or updater would pop up a dialog box that would have focus, and usually the cancel button would have focus inside the pop-up window. I can't tell you how many times I have answered a question without intending to or canceled an installation because of this. Nothing should ever take focus away from the application that is in the foreground. Windows 7 takes a Mac-like approach when an application wants your attention. It simply highlights the taskbar icon. Actually, this is better than Apple's way of doing it. On a Mac, the icon bounces. The bouncing is annoying. Simply highlighting the icon is sufficient. Windows 7 is very good at supporting hardware and even at finding new device drivers for hardware. My notebook computer has a Pinnacle USB 801E HDTV adapter. When I installed Windows 7 several weeks ago, I tried to install the Pinnacle software no dice. But less than a week later, the Microsoft update tool said that it had a Pinnacle update for me. Once that was installed, the Windows Media Player could see the device. On the desktop system, I wanted to synchronize my HP iPac handheld device with Outlook. The application I had used under Windows XP does not function under Vista or Windows 7, so I downloaded the Windows Mobile Device Center software and installed it. It told me the device wasn't plugged in. It was right. The device wasn't plugged in. When I plugged in the iPad, Windows and the application immediately noticed it and installed the required device drivers. Then, the Microsoft application suggested it would be a good idea to set up the device. That seemed reasonable, so I continued the process. Users may synchronize one of these mobile devices with no more than two computers. I had previously set up synchronization with the desktop system at the office and with the desktop system at home. The home system now has Windows 7 installed, so I needed to eliminate the previous relationship and establish a new one, even though it was with the same computer. The next step was for Windows Mobile to determine what kinds of data I would like to synchronize among the three devices. I selected all of the options. I needed to give the device a name, and then Windows Mobile told me that the device was connected, and that it would start the synchronization process. Wow. Everything should be that easy. Previously, I had mentioned that the installation of Windows 7 creates a Windows.old directory. When you update a computer to Windows 7, you'll get that directory. You might think it's safe to delete it right away, and you might be right, but you could be wrong, unless you're really stuck for disk space. I'd keep it around for a while. The update process, if you follow Microsoft's guidance, will install settings for many of your applications. Many. Not all. I discovered that some of my Adobe Audition settings were missing. I discovered that on September 12th. Although I thought I had recorded the settings somewhere, I couldn't find them. Where does Audition store its settings? They could be in the registry, but more likely they're in an .ini file or an .xml file. But where would those files be? These are probably user settings, so I assumed they would be in my user settings directory. Although Windows has its own built-in search function, I used UltraEdit to search in Windows.old. It's not that I don't trust the Windows search function, but I understand exactly how the UltraEdit search function works, so I searched for the letters TBWW because I've used that to name several of the settings. Bingo. Bingo found it in a few seconds. So I copied the files that contained tbww from windows.old to the corresponding directory in Windows 7. At first, though, I did rename the original files that were already in the directory, just so I wouldn't overwrite them, just in case I needed to undo what I was doing. One of the more critical settings that was missing was the output format for the TechBiter MP3 format, the one I use for the podcast. I've mentioned the settings in the show, so I could have found them there, but reinstalling the old settings file was much easier. Even though I now know where the settings are and how I can easily restore them, that's not quite enough. I really do need a record of what I've done, so I opened Microsoft OneNote, and I'll tell you more about OneNote in a future program, created a page for Audition Settings, Besides being on my primary computer at home, OneNote files are stored on an FTP server, and they're replicated on my office computer. If I need the settings again someday, this time I'll know where they are. Oh, and several weeks later, I still haven't deleted Windows.old. The file consumes a few hundred megabytes, but it's worth every single bit when I need to recover some information that might otherwise have been lost. Problems. Okay, yeah, there are some. Some of the most significant problems I've encountered involve Windows Explorer. In attempting to grab the scroll bar, several times I have instead grabbed a directory and moved it to a new location. This really is inexcusable, and it shouldn't have made it past alpha testing, much less beta testing, and into the release candidates. After encountering the problem more than once, I've started paying closer attention to the scroll bar actions, and when I accidentally grab a directory instead, I know that I can just press Escape to cancel the action. But this shouldn't happen. I see it in Outlook, too. My preferred email program, the BAT, allows me to move directories, but only if I hold down the ALT key while dragging the directory. A small software company in Moldova has figured out how to eliminate this problem, so I would think that the mighty Microsoft would be able to figure it out, too. Or at least just copy what RIT Labs has done. Another problem I see with the Windows Explorer is that the left panel, which is typically a list of favorites, drives, and directories, tends to reposition itself without reason or notice. When I click a directory, the list of files and subdirectories appears as expected in the right panel, but then the selected directory is often repositioned in the directory list in the left panel, all the way at the bottom of the screen. There's no logical reason for this. I hope it's on Microsoft's list of known bugs. And there are some incompatibilities and other errors. So far, i found two applications that should work but don't, and a few oddities that I didn't see under XP or Vista. Corel Graphics Suite X4 cannot be installed. The installer seems to work properly but then fails near the end of the process while it's trying to write an entry to a data table. Applications are installed but will not run, and they can't be uninstalled. I have reported this to Corel, and they're working on it. Nero 9 cannot be installed. In a manner similar to what I saw with the Corel Suite, Nero's installer appears to progress normally, but fails near the end. The installed bits must be removed with a Nero general clean tool. I have reported this problem to Nero, and the company has failed to respond at all. Some of the applications that allow selection of a directory from a drop-down list return the wrong directory name. I think this is a Windows error. For example, if I select D backslash level 1 backslash level 2 backslash level 3, Windows will return D backslash level 1 backslash level 2 to the program. So I have to type in the name of the directory. Not a big deal, but an annoyance. And there's still a lot of disk activity, apparently from Carbonite. Unlike under Vista, this doesn't render the computer completely unusable, but it does slow operations. Carbonite is looking into that issue. Overall, I've got to say, go for it. Despite the minor problems, and most of the problems I've encountered can be characterized only as minor, Windows 7 looks like the best operating system Microsoft has ever released. The big question that must be haunting the halls of Redmond these days is whether corporate buyers will continue to stick with machines that are running XP or migrate to Windows 7. Given the way that OEM versions of Windows are sold, it's almost a sure bet that corporate users will move to Windows 7 as they replace aging XP machines. In most cases, those OEM licenses can't be carried forward to new computers, and Microsoft stopped selling XP as of August thirty first, 2009. So the question really isn't whether, but when. Those old XP systems won't last forever, but now at least there is an operating system that's worth upgrading to. <laughs> In short circuits, if you have visited the TechBiter Worldwide website over the past few years, or in the dozen or so years that it was called Technology Corner, you probably know that the new year often brings a site design update. Sometimes the changes are fairly dramatic, and sometimes they're barely visible. If there's something about the site that annoys you, now would be a very good time to let me know about it. The width of the site has changed over the years as the average monitor size and resolution have changed. The cascading style sheet that maintains a consistent appearance from week to week has become more sophisticated year by year. I've added JavaScript to control the way the interface works. I'm thinking about creating a weekly table of contents for the site. I'd also like to fix the system that pops up larger images when you click on a thumbnail so that it works consistently across all browsers. To that end, I have been experimenting with a technology called jQuery, It's been around long enough and is mature enough that I'm fairly certain it will be part of TechBiter Worldwide in 2010. So, let me know if there's something you'd particularly like to see, or something you'd particularly like to not see. I have started experimenting a bit with Google Voice, the service that gives you a new phone number and then allows you to control what happens with calls to that number. You can have the calls ring one phone or multiple phones. It provides voicemail you can listen to by phone or online. It transcribes messages and can send the resulting text to you. Individual callers can be sent to one phone, all phones, or directly to voicemail. And you can use it to make inexpensive international calls, too. Google Voice is still available only by invitation. My first impression is that most people are going to love this idea, but privacy experts are going to be very concerned. The concern is reasonable because your every telephone call could be routed through Google. The service has the ability to record your calls. In fact, that's one of the things I like about it. It has voice-to-text transcription, something else to like. But all this routing, recording, and transcribing of telephone calls gives Google the kind of capability the East German Stasi could only have dreamed about. It all comes down to how much of your privacy you're willing to give up for the conveniences Google services provide. I'll tell you more about the service after I've used it for a while. If somebody tells you about their old USB 1.0 device, the speaker is either lying or has a bad memory. The commercial USB standard began at 1.1 because 1.0 devices never got out of the lab. USB 2.0 has been the standard for the better part of a decade, although the occasional USB device is still released with a full-speed USB 1.1 interface. In this case, full-speed was simply a canard by the USB Industries Trade Association to make USB 1.1 devices, which were on at 1 40th the speed of high-speed 2.0 devices, seem fast. USB 3.0 is coming. It will be called SuperSpeed. and will have a sustained throughput of about 4 gigabits per second. That compares to about half a gigabit per second for USB 2.0. In 2007, USB 3.0 was previewed at an Intel developer forum, and version 1 of the USB 3.0 specification was released in 2008. Freecom, a Dutch storage company, has announced an external hard drive that uses the new standard. A one terabyte drive will cost about $160, but you'll need a new controller card for your PC if you want the drive to run at full speed, so figure another $50 to $60 for that. The company is preparing drivers for Vista and XP. Windows 7 is expected to have native drivers installed before the end of the year. Linux was the first operating system to support the new standard. USB 3.0 is not yet supported by Apple. Here's why you might want one of these drives. Freecom says you could transfer a 5-gigabyte movie from one hard drive to another via USB 3.0 in less than 40 seconds. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.